<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. Because it's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie, too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win Best Oh, Picture. God, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we either feature a new release and delve into our weekend entertainment, focus in on a performer's career, or buy an extra large popcorn and do a double feature. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, y'all better grab your extra large popcorns because we are giving you another double feature. That's right. This one is a really special one for me because we got to watch a film that I've been waiting for since... Well, since forever, really. (laughs) And for our second film, we'll get to that in the second half. But y'all know I just could not wait. So I'm just going to get right into it. Let's do it. Whitney Elizabeth Houston (laughs) was born in 1963 in Newark, New Jersey. If anyone were destined to be a culture-defining phenom of a singer, it was Whitney Houston. Singing was in her blood. Her cousin, famously, is Jan Warwick, who was really America's first black female pop star back in the 60s. Less known is that Whitney was also cousins with Leontine Price, who was the legendary opera singer and the first black woman to reach international acclaim in that field of music. Not to mention Whitney's mom. Okay, if you're like, where are we getting to it? But I'm giving, they need a little Whitney bio. (laughs) Of course. That is the intro. (laughs) Edison's writing a biography for Whitney. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. They need it. Right. (laughs) Not to mention Whitney's mom, Sissy, a successful singer in her own right, who sang backup for everyone from Aretha to Elvis Presley. When Whitney came out with her debut album in 1985, it became the best-selling debut album by a female artist. Her second album debuted at number one on the Billboard charts, an unprecedented achievement at that time. She would then have a string of seven consecutive number one singles, breaking the record previously held by the Beatles, and a record which she still holds today. When she performed the Star Spangled Banner at the Super Bowl in 1991, it essentially became the definitive interpretation of the American National Anthem. Then she tackled Hollywood with The Bodyguard, which made $400 million at the box office, made the best-selling soundtrack of all time, and the best-selling album by a female artist. And of course, was I Will Always Love You. All of this happened just in the first decade of her career. Whitney was a supernova, and yet by the time she died on February 11th, 2012, her public persona and legacy had been entirely overtaken by 15 years of relentless tabloid and press stories covering her toxic marriage to Bobby Brown and her battle with drug addiction. The new biopic, I Want to Dance with Somebody, hopes to correct that and put the focus back on the music. This film, which was number one on my most anticipated list of 2022, mm-hmm. is written by Anthony McCartan, directed by Casey Lemons, and stars Naomi Aki as Whitney, Stanley Tucci as legendary record executive Clive Davis, Tamara Tooney as Whitney's mom, Sissy, Nefessa Williams as Robin Crawford, and Ashton Saunders as Bobby Brown. I Want to Dance with Somebody asks a question. When looking at the full scope of the life of a superstar like Whitney Houston, what are the moments that make the legacy? First impression, mm. <laughs> Helen. Yeah, just saw this this afternoon with Miss Sinclair. We had a little Tuesday matinee date. Mm-hmm. Lovely. This, I guess there weren't any trailers for this film because. Well, it's... the showtime was 1230 <laughs> mm-hmm. and I went and got some popcorn. And I was like, OK, well, we can miss some trailers. That's right. fine. And when I got in there at 1235, there was like one commercial and then suddenly the movie started. Oh, wow. You were lucky. (laughs) And Helen was like getting popcorn and I was like, it's starting. Yeah. So (laughs) I think what I probably missed 30 seconds. Like, I don't think I missed much. But yeah, I the first moment that sort of like hit me was when she is singing and Clive discovers her in the audience. And that I got like full body chills just listening to the voice. I was really like, this music is, and her voice is incredible. And I was, I was excited to see, to watch the rest of it. Mm. <laughs> okay. Miss Sinclair. Yeah. I mean, I thought Naomi Aki looked the part right away. So as soon as she came on screen, I was like, she looks great. And I was really surprised 
by how they got into the Robin stuff right mm-hmm. away. Yeah. Mm. That was surprising to me because normally that romance is not front and center. Mm-hmm. And that really is at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a surprise. And, and I thought it was great that, you know, that was kind of opening this up and that was part of her life. And that's what we're seeing right off the bat. Another thing that I was thinking was... Is Naomi Aki singing some of this? Is some of this Whitney Houston's voice mixed in with hers? Is it mostly Whitney? Is it some of hers? And I couldn't help but think that mm-hmm. right away, especially with the gospel at the beginning. It was clear to me it was not Whitney, mm-hmm. but then other parts really did sound like Whitney. So mm-hmm. I was I was thinking of that yeah. at the beginning and throughout. I was really curious about that too because I had... I had known, I've been watching interviews with Naomi Aki in advance of this. And of course, you know, obviously I know everything about the movie before I go and see it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, um, because I can't help it. I'm on all the discussion forums and everything. So I did know that the there's, at the beginning, there's some of Naomi singing herself. Okay. And she's got a great voice, mm-hmm. which surprised me. And they're blended in a bit with Whitney, of course. You could hear, like, she starts singing The Greatest Love of All at that moment. And mm-hmm. when when they're in uh, that's Naomi's voice at the beginning oh okay and I was like okay well they're gonna obviously have to transition oh there they (laughs) literally like seamlessly transitioned into it being Whitney but the film opens with Whitney about to perform at the 1994 American Music Awards and I knew that this performance was going to be featured in the movie because it's in the trailer Mm. but I didn't know in what capacity. Um, And this is a legendary performance amongst Whitney fans, considered by many to be among her best. Mm -hmm. And like this was Whitney at the peak of her powers, Mm -hmm. right? And so I loved that sort of fan service right at the Mm. beginning. And But I was curious as to why it was right at the very beginning. So I didn't know how that would sort of manifest in the storytelling as the Mm -hmm. film went on. Yeah. But okay, before we get to storytelling, I just need to know... Did y'all enjoy this movie? I did. Yeah, I, I, I did. I liked it. I. <laughs> you can be critical. First of all, this no. is a safe space to be critical. Can we be critical, Edison? <laughs> you can be critical. Look, the critics have been critical, and it's got you know only a forty-six percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, but it has a ninety-two percent mm. from mm-hmm, audiences. Mm-hmm. What we're looking for in a film might not necessarily be the same thing as what general mm-hmm. audiences are a lot of the time. So yes, you are allowed to be critical. It's <laughs> fine. I am also a bit critical of it. It it was pretty much exactly what I thought it was gonna be. And I was gonna save this for my last word, but I'll just say it now. It like Bohemian Rhapsody, when I when I walked out of Bohemian Rhapsody, I was so excited to listen to Queen music. And when I left this movie, I was really excited to listen to Whitney Houston music. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a good thing. Like, if that was the final, you know, impression that I had of this film was I can't wait to listen to this person's music because it's it's so incredible, then I think it did its job. I don't think that this is an incredible movie, but, like, if that's the purpose of it, then it it succeeded for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is the purpose of it. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Sinclair? Well, yeah, I mean, this does follow a classic biopic structure, Mm -hmm. and it does have Bohemian Rhapsody comparisons Mm -hmm. obviously I thought this was way better than Bohemian Rhapsody I was Mm -hmm. not a fan of that movie (laughs) (laughs) at all you can go back to the episode and listen to it I did not like that movie Uh, mostly because I felt like I was being manipulated like Queen wanted me to go out and buy tickets to a world new world tour a reunion Mm -hmm. tour like I felt like I was being Hmm. manipulated as a consumer Mm-hmm. And it was very apparent to me and it just really, really rubbed me the wrong way. And it it also brushed aside a lot of things about Freddie Mercury mm. in order to keep this, cer- this certain glossy mm. appearance to sell to us. And, and that I just could not get behind. Mm. And I felt that this didn't really do that. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that like sick feeling in my stomach. That it's always a, a feeling I get in my stomach when I feel like something's manipulating me. And right. I didn't I did not feel that with yeah. this movie at all. Even though it was a standard biopic, I I felt like it was 
treating her with respect and dignity and and grace and it Mm -hmm. it wasn't really about selling me Whitney Houston Mm. it was actually about the legacy of Whitney Houston the aspects that we want to remember and that Mm -hmm. should be remembered now we have had a conversation recently Edison as this has been in in the conversation this movie coming out that this is a legacy that is being reshaped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't like that there was like a MAC makeup line coming out in a mm-hmm. perfume. Right. We went to see the, you know, anniversary of the bodyguard right. and they were selling like the Whitney Sony Houston's headphones. music with Sony headphones. And yeah. I, I didn't like that. So I was right. a little bit worried about watching the film. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when I did watch this movie, I did not get that feeling. Yeah. I think because they they tried to tell to show a real person. Like mm-hmm. I found this really interesting to watch. I I know there was nothing new in this film for mm-hmm. me, but there never was going to be, obviously. Right. I bet you there will be for some others though, right? For some other people who yeah. do see it. Mm-hmm. And I think that they did a really great job, like you said, of portraying a person going through these struggles, but that not being the defining element of who they were. And yeah. that really is is the key for what this film is trying to accomplish. It, it isn't a movie that's being made about the story of Whitney's life independent of her estate and independent mm-hmm. of all of the rest of it. It is a self-serving biopic. That is mm-hmm. what it is, right? right. It's in, very intentionally trying to remind people of the music. That's why you have so many musical moments throughout mm-hmm. this so many mm-hmm. performances but i thought it achieved what it what it was setting out to with that being said i do understand the the criticisms of people saying like okay but i wanted something that dove a little deeper into right. you know her struggle with her black identity or the black community then uh, or- they need to watch the kevin mcdonald doc yeah because that exactly. was all of that i mean <sighs> That is a good doc, and we've mm-hmm. talked about that doc on the podcast. But mm-hmm. you walk away, and it is you feel Depressing. heavy, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's revelations in that doc, mm-hmm. yeah, that were very hard hitting, yeah. and very devastating for the family mm-hmm. to yeah. have out there. And I, I know that Pat Houston had kind of given Kevin McDonald kind of free range to really dig in and explore. Mm-hmm. Whitney's life and mm-hmm. and all the bad stuff to come out and the truth to come out. So I think that that did that already, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I personally, after watching Blonde, I've I've had enough <laughs> of trauma porn for right. the year. So I feel yeah. like I didn't really need to dig into it because there's so many docs that do. Well, and I I thought about that in comparison because there I did have a feeling of like okay nothing new here this is sort of you know everything I expected it to be and especially after watching that doc and being friends with you Edison like Mm -hmm. I can't not know stuff about Whitney Houston (laughs) sure (laughs) um but then I thought about something like Blonde where I'm like okay that was an interpretation of a biopic that I hated so you know maybe careful what you wish for (laughs) if Mm -hmm. I were wishing this to be something maybe more experimental or whatever like maybe not maybe that's not what this needs to be I I felt like this you know is a great movie for maybe in like 30 years from now someone who doesn't know who Whitney Houston is watching it and being like oh like this is a great representation of her yeah Mm. and I think there's room in 10 or 20 or whatever years to do a film like Spencer for example that focuses maybe on one key moment or you know some little thing like that but that can't be the sort of definitive biopic that captures her like life no yeah and this one was trying to do that I was really curious about the way that they would frame it though because the truth is Whitney's story her her story is incredible she her achievements are yeah. unprecedented. Like yeah. she truly broke the mold. What mm-hmm. she achieved in her career was was had not been done before, really, by by a female artist. Period. But the second, like the last fifteen years of her life, were were really tragic, mm-hmm. like tr- deeply. Mm-hmm. And so when you're telling, you know, most biopics, you have to find a way to have the audience leave 
with yeah. some type of like optimism or hope or something mm-hmm. yeah. and I thought that the way that they framed that performance and used it yeah. to kind of come back in the middle and then close out with that performance at the mm-hmm. end that worked for me I thought that was really mm-hmm. interesting what did, what did you think about that I liked that as well. I was a little bit worried about how they were going to end it. Even going so far as to like have her in the bathroom. Yeah. With the drugs. I, I, I thought, was like, oh, oh God. don't push it. Don't push it any further I know. than this. I know. Uh, like, luckily it, they did it. It um, didn't even need to go that far no. for me. I'm like, okay, we know. Like we know that this happened. We don't need to see it really. So I'm glad that they went back to that performance. And also just, you know, having that scene where she's talking about how difficult that music is going to be for her to sing and then watching her achieve that. And I did go and watch the actual footage that you sent Edison. And it's, that is a like marathon. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. I know. <laughs> I, while I was watching it, I went to see this with my mom yeah. and mom was like, she leaned over. She said, Oh, I hope that they, I hope that it like cuts to Whitney mm. for, oh, for this final bit. Right. And I w- thought I felt the exact same. I know. I was Initially that I was like, I want it to now people need to see the actual thing. Yeah. But then I thought, uh, maybe not because mm. what she possessed was something that's so unique. And we'll get into that with performances, which we'll jump into right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I, I think it may have actually taken away from the film. Yeah. If they had just cut to the Whitney performance at the end in that way, in some way. Edison, I have a question for you, and please keep this brief. Yes. <laughs> so you notoriously hate the Angela Bassett <laughs> Whitney movie. Yes. That she directed. Yes. Right? So, An unforgivable disaster, yes. Right. So <laughs> I actually was debating watching it just to kind of understand, but then I also thought you would be mad at me for watching it. You are correct. And I didn't want to take that risk, so I thought, okay, I'll just ask you. <laughs> oh, my God. See this Whitney movie, comparing it to that, what was it about that movie that you hated so much compared to this one, which you enjoyed? I think the biggest thing was in that film, Whitney had exactly two levels. Oh, I'm a diva and I'm an absolute like hysterical mess, Mm -hmm. losing my shit in a fight with Bobby Brown. Let me just dive into the drugs. That's Mm -hmm. it. Where this was really well-rounded. Yeah, Mm -hmm. this was a person. Yeah. Right? And that was the difference, I think. It actually breathed some life into who Whitney was. There's so much. Like, you just can't capture somebody's... You can't capture anybody's life in, like, the full scale of someone's life in a biopic, right? But let alone somebody with such a life. So, yeah, that was the biggest thing. There was actually a fully-fledged character here. Mm -hmm. And I do think that a lot of that does come down to the performance from Naomi Aki. So let's Mm -hmm. get into that. What did you think of her performance? Yeah, I really liked it. Um, It's, I think that portraying an iconic person in a biopic is a very difficult thing to do. And everyone's going to be critical of it. Yeah. That you're not enough like the person or whatever. And I I did see some reviews of that, that she didn't bring the like sparkle that Whitney had. I think so too. I do. I, I was watching it thinking like, this is very hard to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, even the mannerisms when she's singing and the fact that we were questioning whether or not it was actually her singing, I think, is a testament to the performance because it's not easy to portray that. And the, o- the only thing that gave it away for me, other than the fact that Whitney's voice is Whitney's voice, was yeah. when she was her vibrato, her chin wasn't like shaking with vibrato. <laughs> that was the only thing where I was like, okay, I know it's she's not actually singing it. But yeah, no, I think it was a really good performance, and I've I've never seen her in any and in, in anything before, so it made me excited to like see more of her performances. Yeah, it was a big task, and yeah. it was always going to be challenging. Mm-hmm. I loved what she did. Mm-hmm. I thought that she did such an amazing job. Truly, what you said, Helen, like she nailed even sometimes her voice, her speaking voice occasionally, mm. I w- it would catch me and I'd be like, whoa, mm-hmm. that sounded just like Whitney. Yeah. And, and especially someone like you who has I'm sh- like taken in all of the Whitney oh, footage yeah. there is to take in. That like, interview yeah. moment when she's like, 
uh, sometimes that means right. some times yes that yes, was exactly yeah. Whitney and yeah, I was like yeah. ooh yeah. Uh, but yeah I get it like I think the, the thing about the like charisma or whatever she's great and she also has a lot of charisma but there's this indefinable quality of mm-hmm. someone like Whitney Houston that you mm-hmm. just can't actually replicate yeah. you can't perform that right yeah. like Elton John once said of Whitney Houston that of all of the star he's he's ever met she was the one who had the most presence mm-hmm. wow and that's coming from a, a huge global superstar Elton John yeah. that's not something that an actor can perform you can't perform right. that right yeah. so right. it's just what it is mm-hmm. it was never going to be there in that way but I thought that she nailed so much of the rest of yeah. it. Mm-hmm. I really loved it. And the emotionality yeah. was really great. I also thought that Stanley Tucci was great as Clive Davis. Yes. I really loved him, actually. Like, he was sort of the shining light of this movie for me in terms of, like, he has her best intentions mm-hmm. at heart. And he was just caring. Yeah. And and I just like Stanley Tucci. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. See, I didn't realize that they were so close. I didn't either, actually. And their ke- their chemistry in this is really great. I loved mm-hmm. watching their scenes together, mm-hmm. to be honest. I thought their scenes were really good. She had amazing scenes, actually, with most of the, su- the supporting characters in this film. Mm. Uh, Robin, especially, I thought those two were really good together. Yeah. And there, there are certain aspects of that relationship that you can't get watching the Whitney doc, the Kevin McDonald Mm. doc. You can't see like the laughter, Mm. the jokes, their private life, their private life. Mm. Yeah. You, you have this ability with dramatizations to, to show that, to breathe life into that. So that I found to be really interesting. I thought that was a really great way to show this. Like, this is something that they got accurate, mm-hmm. right? There, there's some factual inaccuracies in the in the film, but largely, not really. Like, mm-hmm. mostly, it was it was just a couple of little things about timing and whatever. Mm. But mostly, they got stuff pretty right, which yeah. impressed me as well. And like that relationship, you know, Whitney. That was something that she had to keep secret for all mm-hmm. those years. Mm-hmm. And she really did in the 80s. It was not the same. You just couldn't mm-hmm. be bisexual and be a global superstar in 1985. Right. right? It's just not what it is. But mm-hmm. yeah, I thought that Nefessa Williams, who played Robin, did a really great job as well. Yeah. I had a, such a hard time wash, watching Ashton Sanders. <laughs> I hated that character and it made me kind of hate the actor too but I think that was just association but also a criticism I do have of this movie is why did no one age in this film I know that (laughs) and I kind of turned turned to each other and we were just like why does everybody look the same as they did when they were in the 80s I know the divorce segment he still looks like a teenager he's still a teenager through this whole movie he looks 17 in the beginning and he looks 17 at the end I know yeah (laughs) and he did not age well so Bobby Brown no Bobby Brown did not age well no, in the like, mid-2000s. They didn't even try to age him at all. At no. When that happened, But Bobby. even Sissy, even Sissy at the end. Yeah, I Sissy was like, okay, Sissy's looking the same. This is years later. But yeah. not her father, John. See, he was the villain, so he got the he was looking right. like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like hell at the end. Um, but even that, to have that relationship explored here, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and those were some powerful moments in her mm-hmm. interactions when she confronted him too in, in yeah. Naomi Aki's performance. Yeah, I was glad to see or to not see physical abuse between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we know did, it. Right? I'm sorry, but I couldn't deal with another "What's Love Got to Do with It" no. type of movie. <laughs> no, and because no. because everybody knows it, and we get the one scene where there is you know tension between them but we don't have to see it and i was grateful for that mm-hmm. yeah yeah um in terms of technical one thing i want to mention was the audio mastering of this mm. just the sheer joy for me of sitting mm. in the theater and hearing mm. whitney perform her voice live in yeah. that surround sound was like <laughs> an otherworldly experience yeah. for me yeah oh that's really cool mm-hmm yeah, her voice, I did get full body chills multiple times throughout this movie. Her voice pierces 
like into your body. <laughs> yeah. And you, you can't get it from headphones, YouTube, right. none of it. But I imagine that that, and I'd never ever seen her live, but I imagine that that might be similar to what it might be like mm. seeing her live. Like mm-hmm. it's a fully encompassing, when when she did the national anthem there, mm. that moment, yeah. I, it put my mom and I both in tears. Like Aww. it was full body goosebumps. Yeah. Mm. I was really wishing I could have seen this with you. I yeah. know. Just to witness your reaction. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, okay. Well, what's the last word on I want to dance with somebody? Yeah. I I think this is a really nice biopic. And it may it just really did make me want to listen to Whitney Houston's music and just take in more about her. And I think that it did its job. And you as a super fan loving it, I think means that it's successful. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Sinclair? Yeah, I think that this one is definitely for the fans. I don't think it matters too much, honestly, if the critics are maybe looking for a grittier version of this. I, I think that this one is actually just to be in, enjoyed as a Whitney fan. I don't want to see the trauma porn version of Whitney yeah. Houston's life. I'm, I, I'm not ready to see it. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually did come out of this feeling okay about it, yeah. which is good. Yeah. And I also thought Edison would be happy. And if Edison <laughs> didn't like this movie, we would never not hear about it. That would be yeah. our life now yeah. for <laughs> never. So I was True. thankful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For me, my the last word on this is go see it. Hmm. Go people, see it. Go see it in theaters. It? Not really, no. Mm. But it it came out. It like Sony really they, they dropped the ball. They knew mm. that critics weren't going to be responsive to it in a positive way, and they held the embargoes back. And mm. then I think that that really hurt it. Also, when it opened, its opening weekend was like the biggest snowstorm in right. like, decades in America. Everything crashed that weekend except for Avatar. Now, it's not losing any steam. Like its box office isn't plummeting. It's chugging along basically the same. Mm. And it's only just now rolling out internationally. I yeah. think it's made like 40 million or something so far. But mm. it's got a lot more to go to be like you know, successful in that way, in the way that I wish that it had been. Well, but... Edison, my father wants to see it. So good. <laughs> Audiences are loving it. You got it. a ticket right there. It has an A cinema score. That means that when audiences are leaving the cinema and that's they're being pulled right then, they're first, oh, that's very high. That's cool. Right. So I think most people really like it. So go see it. You'll probably like it and you'll definitely want to dance with somebody after. Yeah. <laughs> Three years ago, the world oh, was no. introduced. <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, I love it. Let me just try to get the first sentence out and then I'll uh, talk about it. Okay. Three years ago, the world was introduced to Benoit Blanc, the smooth, dark, and southern detective who helped solve the murder of Harlan Thromby and Knives Out. All right, that's it. I'll talk yes, I love it. And now we have another Knives Out mystery to play along with, complete with murder, money, and a group of rich assholes. Glass Onion features Elon Musk-esque character Miles Braun at its center. Miles is an innovative tech giant who invites his closest friends, the Disruptors, to his private island at the start of the pandemic. Kate Hudson plays ignorant fashionista Birdie J. Catherine Hahn is lefty Governor Claire. Leslie Odom Jr. is scientist Lionel. Dave Bautista is men's rights activist Duke. And Janelle Monet is the recently ousted disruptor, Andy. They are invited to the island to solve Miles's fake murder over the course of the weekend. However, someone else ends up dying for real. And luckily, Benoit Blanc is there to witness it all. Glass Onion asks the question, If movie franchises are onions and sequels are layers, does this onion get fresher the deeper we go or is it rotten at its core? Wow. At the core of the onion. 
I'm just a drunken alcoholic mess. <laughs> Sorry, that's a White Lotus moment if any of y'all have not seen it. <laughs> the car, the car, the onion. Okay. Wait, what? when did she say that? In season one. This isn't like, a White Lotus podcast, okay? But it should be, Sinclair. We've well, been trying to make it one Well, it's all the same for... themes, so perfect. Yeah, it is similar. Yeah, true. All right, uh, first impression, Sinclair. Okay, well, I don't have a history of liking Dives Out. <laughs> so really? we know. You don't say. We may have heard you oh, mention yes. that once or I twice. Mean, I thought Dives Out was so far up its own ass. It was finger waggy. I, I couldn't stand it. I was not a fan. So, I mean, obviously, I wasn't really excited for this. However, sitting through three hours of Avatar, The Way of the Water... Mm. And then also having a terrible flu. Mm. I was in just a weakened state <laughs> when I watched Glass Onion. I, I, I kind of was like, okay, well, I feel terrible. I'm weak. I guess defenses this is the defenses are down. I mean, <laughs> what better time to watch Glass Onion <laughs> for the podcast? So, I mean, obviously this started and I... I was annoyed by the characters right away, but I thought I can't go anywhere. I'm sick. Let's just accept this and just go with it. And yeah. and that's that's what I did. Okay. <laughs> Edison. Okay. Well, I mean, I really like Knives Out, uh, as we talked about on the podcast so i will i was looking forward to this Mm -hmm. i i was anticipating that i would enjoy it the film opens basically in that classic way of like rounding up the team right Mm kind of like oceans Mm -hmm. 11 or armageddon right but in this one it's introducing us to all these characters and they're all kind of like vile as they receive this gift from Mm -hmm. some mystery person named miles this wooden box that's a puzzle and they're all kind of connected and doesn't really make sense how yet and they get on this call together to try and figure it out and i was really on board with that mm-hmm. i yeah. i like this type of a thing i think it works mm-hmm. all of them except for janelle monet's character actually who was in this dingy basement she just bashes the box yeah. with a hammer and i was like okay that's interesting that's not fun yeah but <laughs> i i thought that this film opened it was fun and kind yeah. of silly and i think it made sense well, already we were getting a sense of the pace and the the sense of comedy in this film and i was hooked mm-hmm. i really liked knives out i was so excited to watch this so excited that i watched it while i was on vacation wow mm. yeah in dusseldorf i mean it is a vacation movie so true and yeah i felt similarly about the opening i just thought the box was so cool yeah i wanted one yeah (laughs) like i want someone to send me that that looks like so much fun um so yeah i was in i was into it you would send us those boxes on it would be for your birthday (laughs) yeah it would we have to figure it out i would would be like right away it would trivia related to me yeah helen helen has made us go to so many escape rooms only and two. then I get in trouble from the escape room actors for not participating. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I can see fun. you doing this to us for sure. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we get into storytelling? I didn't like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Really? No. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Sinclair, stop. And I cry. I'm a tear. Um, I just, I, oh okay, listen. God. I Sometimes I have to check myself because Sinclair's cynicism seeps into me sometimes. And I'm like, am I just not liking this because of how much Sinclair hated Knives Out? So I, this is what I did. I'm I sorry, watched... but then there I was on the couch week and tried to accept this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Knives Out on the plane back. Mm-hmm. The first Knives Out is so good. This one is not. <laughs> it just doesn't compare. Interesting. That was that was my. I'll go into why I thought that, but that I yeah, it it didn't work for me, unfortunately. Uh 
I okay. I will say I also preferred the original Knives Out. Yeah. But mostly because I f- believe that I like the family dynamic and yeah. the sort of house whatever dynamic mm-hmm, more. Mm-hmm. But I love this movie, and I mm. and I fundamentally I think I just love that we have like a new murder mystery detective franchise. I do like that as well. Yes, these films are fun. They this are is fun. fun, and I thought this film did really like hit that fun part home for me. But more than it just being fun, I thought that it was a really f- cool mystery. And I like that you spend the whole time trying to figure it out, trying to be Mm. one step ahead of what the plot is giving you and trying to like piece it together. Spoiler, obviously, if you haven't seen this and you don't want the mystery spoiled for you, I don't like a twin plot. Oh. (laughs) I think that it's kind of a cop out. This as a whole, this this sequel didn't feel as smart as the first one. Like the first one, I was actually really impressed with the twists and turns. Mm. And I something I loved about the first one is that we see the murder in at the beginning of the movie, right? And you're and you're like, oh, where's this movie gonna go? We know who killed him, mm-hmm. right? And that scene between Christopher Plummer and Anna de Armas is actually such a well acted scene, and you have such you feel so much for her character in that moment, being like, oh my god, what did you just do? It it. It hooked me so much. And then mm-hmm. where it went from there, I just, I was so on board for it. And this one didn't have that for me. This one's lazier. For yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. I, I, I definitely can agree with that, with that bit about that emo- emotional hook right at the beginning, mm-hmm. for sure. I don't think that the film is lazier. I think the storytelling is in yeah, a lot of the, ways. The mm. plot was not, I wasn't like, oh, wow, that was so smart. And that's how I felt with the first one. This one, I was just like, okay. I, but this this movie is basing itself on the fact that it's so dumb. Right, right. Which right. I didn't like. I didn't yeah. like that. I didn't like the whole... I mean, it, it, Benoit was really drilling that home mm. throughout the, oh, that's dumb, and this is mm-hmm. dumb, and that's dumb. And I was right. like, Ryan Johnson, this is your script. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. Okay, okay, but, okay. Well, let's just all imbreviate for a moment. Imbreviate. And, <laughs> and maybe we'll, you know, think better. <laughs> well, okay. So to be fair, I would much rather watch this version of a vacation mystery than see the remake of death on Mm. the nile right Right. you know this is at least more entertaining for sure obviously death on the nile uh evil under the sun these movies Mm. are two very big influences Mm. of of this one so death on Mm -hmm. the nile is from 1978 evil under the sun is 1982 we have hercule poirot Mm-hmm. And those films are complete camp. Mm-hmm. They're so campy. There's mm-hmm. so much. The murder is ridiculous uh, for both of them. That's that's what it is. It's it's camp, and that's what we love about it. So at least these movies are having fun with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Where you know you do have a remake like Death on the Nile. And it's just so glossed over, and it's like a really yeah. dull, boring version. Right. This is camp. It's just yeah, like a modern camp. Yeah, yeah. And I, there was lots I did like about it. Like it, this movie is a lot of fun. I just, as a whole, I wasn't like, oh, like it. Didn't you were have disappointed because you loved the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the first one is way more concise. It's more thought out. It is a tighter script for sure. What I think is interesting here is that the first one is kind of a homage slash spin on this genre where this Mm. movie feels like it is the genre. Yes. So it's like this transition now from homage take on something to, oh, this is going to be a series now. Now it is just the genre. Yeah. So that's interesting. With that comes oh, okay, well, that means the mysteries have to be pretty good. And, oh, Benoit needs to be a fully fleshed out detective, Mm. like a Hercule Poirot. I don't think Benoit, Benoit is still a spoof to me Mm. of a detective. He's not a detective yet. And Mm. in this movie, he doesn't feel like he's a fully fleshed out detective. 
that's in oh, a so series you, of films. I still I, feel like he's a spoof, but I don't mm. think that this particular mystery and writing allowed him to fully show his intelligence. Hmm. Okay, I disagree with that. I I do kind of see what you're saying. It's not a full, it's not a hard disagree, (laughs) (laughs) but it's a little bit of a disagree. I think that this, he's actually much more of a fleshed out, fully embodied. And to be fair, that could be credit to Daniel Craig and we'll get to that. But character in this film, then in more so than in the, the first film, I thought that he definitely demonstrated his his chops as a detective. He had Try- really good moments. I think, oh, yeah. I think it was just him revealing the mystery and everything because the mystery in the puzzle and the puzzle is not that strong and the ending mm-hmm. of this film is not that strong. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get to really have the best final scene of him solving it. Yeah. Okay, I think that's probably fair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Something else that I found in comparison comparison Anna de Armas's character is so likable and good and there aren't there isn't really a good character in this film like no there's nobody that whose side you're on yeah. until about two-thirds of the way through the film when we get the reveal yeah of who Janelle Monáe's character is then you're on her side but yeah. you haven't been for the first 90 exactly. minutes or whatever necessarily yeah, and I think that was something that I, I struggled with as well because I was just like, well, I don't like anybody in this movie. Yeah. And I get that we are supposed, like, we are kind of, we're they're making fun, obviously, but you need something to latch on to. And I struggle with that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of had a, a difficult time, even with, with the first one, with mm-hmm. the the politics of these movies because Mm -hmm. I I feel like it has this kind of finger waggy politics but it's not it doesn't fully explore any of the ideas and there's big political themes in these movies that I feel like are just made into jokes Mm. I, I guess but you know the first one obviously there's politics in that but this one really delves into billionaires and how how do they get there and the people they exploit and Mm -hmm. and all of that and when it's reduced to oh this guy's just dumb this guy's just an idiot it's like but no they're not right yeah they're not they aren't idiots and their consequences are real Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. real consequences when these types of people get power it's not a bumbling idiot it's Mm. that that the Edward Norton character is reduced mm-hmm. to. That's not what life is at yeah. all. And I have a hard time with that because I feel like these movies try to make political statements, but they don't really make them or don't make them in an effective way. Interesting. Cause I, I, I feel like a, they're demonstrating basically all of the characters and what these characters represent. Like, yeah, him as this sort of eccentric billionaire who, who just got his way to the top by like manipulating and stealing from everybody and whatever, but also all of the rest of them as basically some kinds of public facing influencers, mm-hmm. whether it's the governor or like, yeah, um, Dave Batista's character mm-hmm. or Kate Hudson or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. They're all sort of glass onions themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like they're, you, there really aren't layers. You can see mm-hmm. through them and they put up these facades for their, you know, their public image or whatever that people buy into. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of making that commentary about what we're buying. It's mm-hmm. like the emperor's new clothes. So everyone's just into these glass onions that, that are nothing there. But then who's dumb, Madison? Like who's the movie saying is dumb? It's saying we're dumb. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Kim Kardashian is the but, most famous human on the planet. Yeah. We're fucking dumb. Right. But like, that's what we don't like about Adam McKay movies. It's like what we we mm. don't like. You don't want to you don't want to treat your audience that way. Mm. That's that's the thing. You could co- you can have commentary on these things, but I don't like when movies treat their audiences that way. Mm. Uh, but here's the thing. I think that you I don't feel like this movie is saying like you're an idiot in the way that don't look up was like, oh, everybody's so fucking stupid. It, it like shouting it at you that puts me off i think that this film is saying hey everybody look at all this shit that you're like 
celebrating building a castle to or monument mm. to. Well, it also is the theme of this movie, the glass onion yes. theme. So glass onion is a song by the Beatles. It was a song written by John Lennon in 1968. Mm. And the reason this inspired Brian Johnson is because Glass Onion was basically about the Beatles saying to critics and fans, you're attempting to analyze our lyrics and find Mm. deeper meaning. That's just not there. Mm -hmm. And this Glass Onion is this metaphor for looking too deeply into something that's transparent with multiple Mm. layers. And it's like, so now we're being criticized for looking too deeply into things. So it's like we don't look deep enough. And then now we're looking too deeply into this. And I I just don't think it's like a cohesive hmm. theme ultimately. But it actually does make sense to me. Because when I was watching this, I just thought to myself, you know what? I'm done. I'm I'm done. I've beaten a dead horse about these movies. I think these movies are okay. They're mm-hmm. they're okay. They're not great. I don't think they have much to say. I don't think they're that funny. And I can't really get anything deep out of them. And that's exactly how I felt at, when I was watching this. And I thought, well, then that's just it. And then, <laughs> and then, and then the director confirmed it. Confirmed it. So I said, well, that's the answer. One thing I will give the movie credit for is giving them the rights to a Beatles song, which I thought was insane because you would think that there would be a lot of Beatles songs in movies, and there are not. Mm -hmm. If Uh if you go back and think about it, really, if it's not a Beatles-related movie, it's not about the Beatles, you don't really have the rights to use Mm -hmm. Beatles songs. They are about protecting their artistic integrity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so performances. What were some of our faves? How do we feel about it? Oh, I mean, I thought that this, the performances were really great in this. Mm-hmm. I thought all of these actors are clearly having such a great time and so happy to be there mm-hmm. and to get to chew up the scenery and play these ridiculous outlandish characters. The standout was definitely Janelle Monet. Mm. To mm-hmm. me, like I, the complexity of that character, she had to play someone pretending to be right. someone else and then had to play both that someone else and also her actual self. And if mm-hmm. that sounds confusing, it is. And imagine <laughs> trying to portray that as an actor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I liked her. I think probably my fave was Kate Hudson as Birdie J. There oh, were moments yes. where I, th- I thought it was a bit too much, like moments where I was like, oh, I really don't like you, but she's not a likable character, so. <laughs> I actually loved her casting. I loved mm. her as this character because the thing is, is that her character, this character, Birdie, is like awful, right? Mm-hmm. She's racist. She's mm-hmm. rude. She's privileged. Like, it's all of the worst possible things. Yeah. But if she were played by anybody who was, like, who is more actually just like innately lovable than right. Kate Hudson. Yeah. And if she were played by almost anybody else, it would just be too easy to despise that character. And it just makes it easy. Well, I actually like that you can't help but kind of somehow love her because you love Kate Hudson. And then you're like, oh, fuck, why am I liking this person? But that's actually yeah. kind of a fair point. One of my favorite moments of the film is when um, Benoit says to Bertie. It's a dangerous thing to mistake speaking without thought for speaking the truth, don't you think? And then she turns to him and says, are you calling me dangerous? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I loved. It's a great line from him and her response. One of my favorite parts, too, is when they first arrive in Greece and they're all getting off on the dock and they all have their masks on. She's wearing an entirely useless mesh mask. Mesh mask, I know. (laughs) But there were people who wore those. Yeah. Yeah. Like, God. <laughs> yeah. Bless. Uh, and I and I want to say I do I really like Daniel Craig as Benoit yeah, Blanc. I do too. I think he's really well suited to the role, and I love seeing him do the comedy. Mm-hmm. Like the comedy part of it, he's really great at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Especially after doing James Bond. It's yeah. like it's a great contrast. <laughs> yes, there's similar elements there that can that can tie in, but it's you're right, it's such a great contrast. Mm-hmm. 
I want to just also quickly shout out, I mean, this film was full of cameos, but particularly I want to shout out Angela Lansbury and Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, that was cool. They were on the Zoom call playing Among Us, which I also love that because this is a a fun game that gained popularity during the lockdown. And I actually played it a bunch with the water polo team, but they've both since passed away. And also Steve Sondheim wrote The Last of Sheila, um, which is another classic murder mystery film. Mm. Yeah. In terms of technical, shout out to Jenny Egan for costume design. The costumes in this movie are so fun. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. especially Benoit's, like, swimming suit. Yes. <laughs> Love that. And, I mean, all of Kate Hudson's outfits in this are oh, yeah. just epic. Yeah. Uh, I really liked this the set, actually. Yes. There was a lot of steampunk elements to mm. how this was designed like the the puzzles uh that mm-hmm. were sent around the glass onion itself there it looked steampunky mm. to me which i could get behind i like looking at this movie for sure yeah yeah i thought it was beautiful i agree the production design in general everything the set the the it was all really 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 spectacular yeah beautiful. yeah all right, what is the last word on Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, Sinclair? My last word on this is why did they have to say a Knives Out mystery? That makes no sense at all. Ryan Johnson didn't want that. Uh, and he didn't. Of course not, and he shouldn't. <laughs> I would be so mad if I was him. Why yeah. on Netflix earth made him do it? Would you put a Knives Out mystery? That would that would honestly be like calling a movie Murder on the Orient Express, a death on the Nile mystery. Right, I know. <laughs> like, these are different mysteries. Yeah. I know. Yeah. If that they had to no do sense. that, they could have said, like, a Benoit Blanc a mystery. A Benoit Blanc right. mystery. It's like, we are dumb, I guess. Well, I was just about to say, it's because people are too dumb a- to Apparently, them. we are. So, yeah. great. <laughs> no, but but truly, that's that's it. They needed yeah. to guarantee that everyone knew exactly what this was, and mm-hmm. it worked. People, mm-hmm. everybody knew exactly what it was. Yes. But I agree. <laughs> the last word that's for my me. Last word. I hope that the I hope that the next one is like a sunshine Guns coast, up. a a glass onion, a knives out mystery, mystery. <laughs> and then they just like keep building on it. That actually would be it's funny. It's the layers yeah. of an onion. The title. Oh the titles of these films. See Easter eggs already uh-huh. for future films. The last word for me is that I really, really had fun watching this movie. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I also love that Benoit Blanc is gay, and that yeah. the biggest detective series that exists right now has a gay detective. Who's married to Hugh Grant? Cool. Hugh Grant, I loved that. <laughs> I especially loved the moment where he answers the door and it's like he's been baking bread, obviously, because it's <laughs> pandemic, and he has flour ah, all over his face yes. and he's like holding a, a mason jar of yeast. Like that, <laughs> that was, was all great. of us yeah, in May 2020. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I yeah, really, that... really liked it. Yeah, last word for me. Uh, I much prefer the original Knives Out mystery, Knives Out, <laughs> but. <laughs> But this was fun. Like, I don't regret watching it. I just had high hopes because I liked the first one so much. So, yeah. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie to Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to become a Patreon member, patreon.com slash talkmovietome. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison, and I will always love you, especially you Patreon subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> and only you, no, just <laughs>